Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection from Deping Chen. Land of Big Numbers traces the journeys of the diverse and legion Chinese people, their history, their government, and how all of that has tumbled messily, violently, but still beautifully into the present. Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan calls it, quote, gripping and illuminating. Land of Big Numbers offers intimate glimpses of the seductive power of state control, the Faustian bargaining it requires of its citizens, the landscapes and lives it forces them to discard, in exchange for material prosperity. At the heart of Deping Chen's remarkable debut lies a question all too relevant in 21st century America. What is freedom? Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection by Deping Chen. Available now from Mariner Books. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening wherever you happen to be. I have on the program today Jill Adamson. She is a Canadian author. And her latest novel, The Ridge Runner, will be available in the United States of America from House of Anansi Press on February 2nd. It is already available up in Canada. The Ridge Runner is part literary western, part historical mystery. It is the much-anticipated follow-up to Adamson's critically acclaimed debut novel, The Outlander, published, uh, I believe, back in 2007. The Outlander won or was nominated for a whole slew of awards, including Amazon's first novel award and the DeShiel Hammett Prize for Literary Excellence in Crime Writing. The Ridge Runner was a decade in the making, and it was worth the wait. The novel was published uh, first, as I said, up in Canada this past year, where it won the Writers' Trust Fiction Prize for Best Canadian Fiction of the Year, and it was also a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Is it is it Scotiabank Giller or is it Scotiabank Guillet? I could be, you know, there's always the Quebecois. I'm going to go with Scotiabank Giller. Forgive me if I'm screwing that up. It's it's Canada's biggest literary prize. You would think I would know <laughs> how to pronounce it. But uh, hey, I'm from Los Angeles. I don't know anything. 
As I said, uh, on February 2nd, House of Anansi Press will publish The Ridge Runner here in the United States. And I'm excited to share uh, a wonderful conversation with Jill Adamson momentarily. Before we get there, I do very briefly just want to acknowledge that today, uh, the day that this episode goes live, is Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. There is exactly one week left in the dismal presidency of Donald Trump. And last week, exactly a week ago, a violent mob directed by Trump attacked the United States Capitol and tried to overthrow the government. For those of you who have been listening to this program for any number of uh, episodes, you probably know how much disdain I have for Trump. I have talked about him and my disdain for him and his administration ad nauseum on this show. I have been sounding the alarm uh, about him since before he, uh, you know, took office four years ago. And I've taken some shit for it on social media and elsewhere, people emailing me, telling me I'm crazy, that I have Trump derangement syndrome, that I'm paranoid, that I need to stick to literature and forget about politics, whatever it is. And I just feel like telling everyone who told me that to fuck off forever. (laughs) Um, I think we're at the beginning of a reckoning. And it's going to take a long time for the United States of America writ large to come to grips with what has happened in this country and what this man has done and what this man and his administration have done to this country and to the world, but especially to this country. And there is going to be a very painful reckoning for the people who supported Trump, who minimized Trump, who ignored the threat of Trump, who uh, ridiculed those who tried to sound the alarm, everybody who was on board with this in one way or another, there's a very painful reckoning that a lot of these people are going to have to go through. And then, of course, there's always going to be like the purely psychotic faction who just refuses to ever take any kind of... uh, genuine, introspective approach. And I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of genius who figured this out and knew all along. You know, there can be a lot of self-congratulatory sort of like slapping yourself on the back. Here's the thing. There were millions of us who had this figured out. Millions (laughs) of us who knew this was coming if people didn't stop it. There's nothing special about seeing and understanding the danger of this guy. He was right out in the open with his intentions. All the way along. And his criminality is a matter of public record. If you bother to read it, it's all there. And it's been there for years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to answer for. There's a lot to sift through. 
And I just feel like marking the moment. One week left. I think it's going to be a very turbulent and potentially very violent week. And I, you know, I couldn't even begin to predict what we're going to see. Hopefully, cooler heads will somehow prevail. Biden will be sworn in and we can start to move on from this disaster. But I'm marking the moment. We're living through some absolutely batshit crazy history in the United States. And uh, I hope you're all hanging in there. It's a grind to live through this. You know, coupled with the pandemic, the economic impacts, all of it. The accrued psychic toll is nothing to sneeze at. So with that in mind, I have a great conversation that will help take your mind off of, off of this. And we'll put it somewhere else, somewhere better. I had a wonderful time meeting Jill Adamson uh, over the line. We talked and uh, just I really enjoyed her. I think you're going to have um, a great time hearing what she has to say. So let's get to that. Her new novel is called The Ridge Runner, available in the United States from House of Anansi Press on February 2nd. Here she is, folks. This is Jill Adamson. It's, it's been, you know, the, the, the Western, and in particular the American Western, has been a great love of mine for many years. And my husband and I have, you know, watched as many Western movies as we can and, you know, read those books and also the sort of the literary... Um, what you would call a, a literary Western, like like Cormac McCarthy um, and Robert Olmsted, and you know the the sort of uh, what you would call classics of the literary Western. But as a woman um, and as a Canadian, you know, I come to these things with a, a bit of a different eye, and so it was really fun for me and very uh, I hope refreshing for the reader to see, you know, a great love for the genre. But, uh, you know, a desire to kind of play with it in a way that, uh, you know, does things a little differently. Um, so for me, uh, approaching the genre and writing, you know, when I wrote uh, my first novel, The Outlander, uh, it was kind of an experiment to see if I could even manage uh, the novel form. Because, you know, if, if, every, if just reading novels and appreciating them taught you how to actually manage to write one, then we'd have a lot more novels on the, uh, uh, you know, uh, out there and published. I didn't know if I could manage the genre, so I just, I just tried it. And uh, the way I started was I took a poem written by me um, and used it as a kind of a, uh, an outline or a point form. It was a kind of a point form biography, the, uh, the poem was called Mary, and it was about a, a crazy woman. Um, and it, too, the poem was a bit of a Western. Uh, very quickly, I departed from using the poem as uh, an outline, and the story took off on its own. Um, the book came out, and as you say, uh, it was a, kind of a shock how well it did. And, uh, you know, as I keep saying, what what an odd thing to run into somebody on an airplane who has read your book and doesn't know you. Uh, that was pretty thrilling, um, uh, and then, you know, later I thought, well, let's, let's try again. Let's see if I can write another novel. And I was very careful with this, uh, with Ridge Runner to make sure that it is, it's, 
it's less a sequel than it is a kind of a follow-up. I call it a standalone follow-up. So it's very uh, easy for a reader to just simply read this book and have no concept whatsoever that there was a first novel. Um, and vice versa, it, it, you know, you could write, you could read Ridge Runner, go, oh, I see there's another, uh, there's another book and read that and it would be a prequel. Um, and the, the two don't, in other words, you don't have to do, you know, your homework uh, to read Ridge Runner. So for me, branching out again into this wonderful uh, literary Western was a lot of fun and um and very uh enriching actually for me it, it also encouraged me to um uh to just go crazy on watching uh movies and reading books that would inspire me so w why uh do westerns appeal to you so much why does the genre move you well um the stakes are big um the stakes are always big in a western there's always a sense of freedom uh, Westerns are very much about um, the freedom to do what you want to do and to define freedom the way you personally uh, would define freedom. Um, uh, and that there's a all, it's about the frontier. It's very much about the frontier. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who the uh, who the person was, but I there was a I'll have to look it up, see if I can find it. But it was a a, a woman academic who was writing on the on the subject of of the american western in particular and she said you know our appetite for the frontier um arrived the the second the frontier disappeared so you 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 immediately want the thing that you have lost and that you've taken uh for granted and you know so many of us live in cities and so many of us are um surrounded by other people and our lives are circumscribed certainly right now very definitely cir circumscribed by the behavior and the presence of other people um so there's something beautiful about uh that particular genre the western genre and the way it talks about being out there in the wilderness in the desert um and you know um surviving or doing things according to your own lights so that's really what, uh, you know, as the author living in these books and living, you know, in the world that I've created, there's that's the pleasure for me is is the sense of freedom and responsibility that comes with that freedom. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of affection for Westerns as well. And I have I think I have a lot of affection for just the idea of a, of a frontier. Uh, I have kind of a romantic notion of it. And I think about my own migratory pattern as a human being, like I was raised in the Midwest in the United States and then went to Colorado for college. And then from Colorado, went to California. I kind of went as far West as you could go. <laughs> and now I'm stuck here in uh, Los Angeles at like the bottom <laughs> edge of the country. Oh, <laughs> that sounds great to me actually. But so where were you born in the Midwest? Uh, in Milwaukee, up, you know, not too far from uh, Canada. So, you know, I have yeah. kind of like a, I feel like there's some kinship between like the northerly like Great Lakes states and in the Canadian sensibility and um No there really is. There really is. You're, you know, we we often think of you guys as like honorary Canadians because there's you know, culturally there 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 are a lot of similarities. For sure. And then there are similarities between let's say where my book is set in Alberta and Montana and the the in a weird way the they have more in common with each other, those particular Westerners who live in the, in the Rockies than they do with, um, 
you know, Toronto or Washington or, you know, culturally, uh, they get on in in a in a kind of an amazing way, and it's almost as if the culture is following the the topography of the mountains. You know, you you live in a very big country with with uh, with vast you know different topographies, and that stuff really does affect culture. I think. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, it, like, and what's interesting is that it never even occurred to me to move east. Like I think right. back, I think back, and it was like I have friends who are like, I got to get to New York, and I got to get to Washington D.C., or I want to move here, I want to move there. In my head, it was always head west, always, and to the coast, like go to the coast or right? the mountains. I mean, I was in, I, I, I went to high school in Indiana, which is like flat as a board. There's not even a river, you know, like there's just nothing. <laughs> and so I was in this kind of like, you know, desolate uh, cornfield, uh, you know, milieu, and I just. Yeah, I don't know. Mountains were so exotic to me. Sunshine was like hey, sun- Colorado. For goodness sake, like that you that's some of that stuff is amazing. It's just gorgeous. gorgeous, just gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I have this kind of romantic idea of it and I always have and I'm sort of living it in my own contemporary way. And yet when I think of my favorite Westerns um, and I'm thinking of uh, movies, especially the, the best ones are super gritty. Um, yes. And I'm thinking of period pieces too. I'm not thinking of like the Coen brothers doing like a, you know, an old, uh, no country for old men or, or like a Cormac McCarthy Western right. of the modern era. I'm thinking like back in the 19th century and I'm thinking of the movies where, you know, they're chewing tobacco and their teeth are blacked out and it's rough, you know, like as much as I want it to be like dances with wolves where you're living in some beautiful, you know, prairie and everything's pure and, you're making friends with the Native Americans and all this kind of stuff. Like the truth is that it was hard living. And it was hard living. So you have to kind of, I mean, was it a challenge for you? Because I imagine if you work in this genre, you have to have some romantic notion of it. But you also want to try to balance that against the actual reality of lived experience in the period that you're working in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our our mutual f- friend Lauren Sarand uh, uh, made reference to a wonderful movie uh, called McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and the the grittiness um, and the sort of uh, you know uh, the difficulty of living in a mining town uh, like like in that movie uh, is just it's so delightful to to watch uh, the director deal with that kind of stuff. Um, and for me, obviously, I had to. Um, this this is a realistic uh, western, so I I had to um, I had to make sure I understood what it was like for people physically to be living, um, you know, in the mountains outside of Banff, Alberta, and in uh, and in Montana, and so I really had to do a lot of uh, a lot of research um, and a lot of you know looking at aerial photographs to figure out you know is there a pass through here and could could a person make this. Uh, uh, how long would it take, for instance, William Moreland, my main one of my main characters, the Ridge Runner, to get from here to there? What would it be like if it snowed? What would it be like if it was warm? What uh, what month of the year is this? Um, and uh, so that uh, that kind of research, I, I have to say, it sounds like a grind, um, but it's really very pleasant to to do that stuff because you're creating the world in your head and you're creating what you hope anyway is a uh you know a believable and 
visualizable uh, scene and world and characters in that world so that the reader, hopefully, can picture themselves there. Do you do any field research? Do you fly over to Alberta from Toronto and check it out and get on the ground and see it for your, you know, with your own eyes, or is this all library research? Oh, no. Um, I used to live in Banff uh, when I was younger, and I returned there all the time. So uh, I already have a kind of a, um, a, a limited uh, uh, sense of the physicality of, of living in that kind of environment. One of the last times I went... Um, I went out and I went on the train, which was an amazing experience. Uh, um, and I kind of splurged and got myself a little room um, and saw the northern lights in the middle of the night from my cute little room. Um, it's way too expensive to do that uh, now, but boy, oh boy, was that ever great. And when I landed in, when I got off the train, it was actually um, in Edmonton, they were in the middle of a blizzard and it was 36 to 40 below. Um and that was the second time in my life I'd experienced that kind of that kind of cold. And for some reason, it it I couldn't stop laughing. It was just ridiculously, deliciously cold. And you know, thank goodness I uh, this is the modern world, and I had I had warm places to get into. But uh, that was incredible. But yes, long story short, um, uh, there are two ways to answer that question. One, you really do need to go to the place and make sure that you're not making any mistakes. Um, but the actual writing of it, um, I found it was better for me not to be standing in the environment and going, okay, you know, there's a tree over there, and this is what it feels like, but to, in fact, uh, be completely out of that environment, to write about it um, as carefully as I could so that the entire of my imagination was brought to play on creating that world. And I, I hope what that creates for the reader as well is what you were referring to earlier, a slight bit of magic or a slight bit of romanticism um, to it, and yet hopefully still uh, a realistic story. So kind of both. It's a strange way uh, to, uh, to describe it, but over the many years that it takes to write a book, yes, you do have to go visit the place if you can. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you might have a notebook or you probably have your, your computer in your notebook and you go to a place and you're, you're taking it in and you're jotting some things down but when it gets to the actual brass tacks of writing you have to 
sort of trust that you've um, absorbed, you know, what you needed to absorb, and then you have to trust your imagination and just work from that well of material and not get too finicky or um, I, what's the word that I'm looking for? I guess finicky works, you know, about yeah. going through and getting every last leaf and blade of grass right, you know, because I think some people might get intimidated. Well, I mean, writing a novel period is intimidating, but if you're working in historical fiction and you're really trying to nail place and time, I think a lot of people just would freeze up and go, oh, geez, like what a tall, <laughs> what a tall order, you know, at some point you have to be yeah. willing to leap and be a creative person and imagine and, you know, not hold yourself to some standard of fidelity that's just impossible to meet. Absolutely. You, you put it, you put it perfectly. It, you know, it's daunting. Um, uh, and you know, you're going to get things wrong. What you hope is that the, 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 the things you get wrong are extremely minor. Um, so flora and fauna, you know, uh, I've, I've had, uh, I had a reader of my first book, um, write to me and say, you know, you mentioned this or that tree and, uh, they're just, they're just not in that area. They're sort of, you know, 20 kilometers to the West the, yeah, you'll see them over there, but you're not going to see them here. And uh, if, if that's all you get wrong, you know, in a, in a historical novel in which you've had to do research on, you know, for the outlander, I had to research what life was like, uh, for women, um, you know, what the daily life was like for, uh, uh, you know, for the average miner um, in at the turn of the last century. So, yeah, you can get very wrapped up in it. You can also disappear into it. There's a point at which you have to say, OK, bucko, that's enough. That's enough research. Sit down and and just, you know, trust that you can do this, that you can do this right. You know, I keep saying um, there's, you know, Patrick O'Brien, who who wrote the all those uh, seafaring books, is an example of uh, a historical novelist who got almost everything. You know, it's phenomenal uh, what he what he gets right in the kinds of worlds that he creates. Whether you like that kind of book or not, I kind of love them. Um, um, but even he got letters from people saying, well, I just have to tell you that, you know, you got the rope wrong on this particular kind of, you know, frigate. So, you know, so you just have to be a good sport about it and forge ahead. Are you an outdoorsy person? Like, are you somebody, like, would you go out and camp up? I mean, if you lived in Banff, I have to imagine that you, you have some of that in you. But when you're doing research and you're trying to get inside of, uh, you know, your protagonist's mind and life and experience, like, are you forcing yourself out into nature to, to live the way uh, he might have lived? It's funny. Um, I had a pretty outdoorsy um, childhood and, uh, and youth. Um, and then, you know, as I got to, into my late, uh, mid to late 20s, and I met my current husband, Kevin Connolly, who was a poet. And, um, you know, uh, quite out, he's not outdoorsy, actually, he's, he's very active. Um, but he absolutely put his foot down and, and refused to go camping. So we don't, we don't camp because as he said, he doesn't want to uh, spend all night with a root in his back. Uh, so, you know, we haven't done that kind of thing, but we, we love, one of our favorite things to do, um, is to actually drive down into your beautiful country. Um, and we've got several uh, places that we like to visit that are, uh, desert. So, uh, one of our, one of our most favorite places to go is Moab, Utah. And, uh, Moab has some of the best hiking 
they call it hiking. Some of it is some of it is strenuous, and some of it is just a walk. Um, and the other place we really love to go is Big Bend National Park, which is in Texas, and it's right down uh, by the Rio Grande. And you know you can throw a stone across the Rio Grande and hit Mexico. And it's uh, that particular area is alpine desert, so uh, it's very high mountains, but it's you know uh, desert uh, uh, flora. Um, they also have cougar and black bear, and at the at the moment, I would imagine the wildlife is just thriving because not a lot of people are are traveling there. Um, but we really miss going there. We really miss these kind of outdoorsy things. But you know, I'm older now, and I really like to go back to a nice little hotel room. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know, snuggle up in a in a in a bathrobe and you know, uh, read a book. Yeah, I did a lot of camping in my you know college and early twenties. And I had like I kind of fancied myself an outdoors, doorsy kind of person. But the truth is that I haven't really camped hardly at all ever since then. And then my wife—it's sort of the inverse of your situation. My wife is like, "No fucking way, are we camping?" <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what Kevin said as well, uh, in in as many words. So, and and honestly, I remember um, I remember winter camping, and it's pretty miserable. But let's face it; it's you're cold if you haven't brought the right. You, you. Uh, the last time I did it, I'd forgotten my proper boots, and so I spent the whole time with wet feet. And let's face it, that was sort of gross. But you know, canoeing—a lovely long wilderness canoe trip, where you've brought all your stuff, um, and you have a nice stable canoe, and you've got people with you. And in my case, it would have been my dad and my brother. Um, and you know everybody's capable and everybody's strong and you know you just have a wonderful time and it's summer and you can go swimming and that's great that's my idea of bliss so i want to ask you about this idea of follow-up i mean we've we've talked about ridge runner being a standalone experience you don't have to have read uh outlander in order to read ridge runner uh or vice no. versa but you know, you had this this kind of uh, unexpected big success with Outlander when it came out in two thousand seven, and Ridge Runners publishing uh, a good bit later. And I'm wondering if the pressure to follow up was creatively stifling at all. Uh, did you feel a sense of deep pressure, you know, to make sure you didn't disappoint with this uh, with this next book, and just the psychological experience, like trying to navigate all that? I think you have to find a way to divorce yourself from those concerns when you're in the act of writing. Otherwise, you're just going to be a mess. But I think it's also human nature to feel some of that, is it not? It is. You're you're exactly right. And I, I can't overstate how um, worried I was uh, be, for a, a bunch of reasons. Uh, you don't want... <clears throat> you'd like uh, your second novel to do okay. And you've got this other success to sort of compare it against. And um, I would have been fine if this book had done moderately well or hadn't really, you know, came out in the middle of uh, a pandemic. Uh, so that asterisk would have, you know, possibly made me feel a bit better. Um, but most uh, pressure I felt was to hopefully, please God, not to disappoint my publisher who have uh, been, you know, very uh, um, behind me and very passionate and very and just done wonderful things with my my book. And when uh, Ridge Runner came out, they brought out a new edition of the Outlander so that they would be 
um, you know, a new design and corrections and all that kind of stuff. So, and all that costs money. So when you come out with a book and you see people getting behind you like this, for me anyway, the big fear was, oh God, I hope it does well because, you know, uh, I don't want to disappoint these lovely people. So I'm, I'm thrilled with what's happening right now. And I think my publisher is very happy. Um, in terms of the actual writing of it, I think a lot of writers will, uh, will agree with me here you you can't and really don't when you're writing think about those other uh those other elements it's only when you stop writing and then start wandering around your uh, your office and pacing that those kinds of thoughts come to you those spooky what ifs uh come to you um but during the actual writing uh, i enjoy writing so much that uh, all other um concerns just basically vanish so yes and no, I guess is the answer. And like in terms of, um, you know, what's happening with it now and the way that books are received by the market, like obviously if you tell a great story um, and you've rendered a world, you know, vividly and, you know, you do all the stuff that a, a writer is supposed to do, I you know, you may disagree, but I think there are writers who do these things beautifully and their books don't find an audience for whatever reason. And yep. I think that, I think that, uh, there's always this kind of like magical element of timing and <laughs> whatever happens to be in the ether at the moment. Uh, some authors just resonate. Some artists just have an instinct for storytelling or making music or whatever it is that, strikes a chord and I don't think they even know what it is or could define it in so many words. But, um, as I, I try to like think about Ridge Runner and the moment that we're in right now, it sort of makes sense to me that people would be in the mood for a Western, some historical fiction, getting out of time, you know, <laughs> like if there was ever a time you would want to leave, it's the current time where we're dealing with this pandemic and we're all, you know, in lockdowns and we've been, you know, suffering for months on end. You know, it seems like a good time to be working out of time. To imagine yourself somewhere else. And I, I think, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There's an amazing amount of luck, uh, both good and bad, you know, the, the every season, every year, um, books come out, and I think you're right that uh, it's sometimes mysterious as to why a, an amazing, uh, gorgeous book just doesn't get on awards lists or just doesn't find a readership. And, you know, as a writer, I find myself just bewildered. It's like, this is such a good book. What what, what happened? And then again, when, when uh, you know, I, I have been extremely lucky so far, and I'm keenly aware of that. Um, but you know, I'll take it. Thank you very much. And, you know, obviously because it took me so long to write this book, I could not possibly have planned. Nobody could have planned, um, the, the effect of the pandemic and the, um, the kind of new life we find ourselves in and the chaos, uh, we couldn't have, uh, uh, predicted what, how the effect of that on readers. In fact, I think people are reading more. And really, when my book came out, and the in the first few months um, up here in Canada, I had no idea if people were ever if, whether my publisher was even going to be alive in a few months. And thank goodness, um, they are, and things are doing well, and people are reading 
for exactly the reasons you just outlined. Yeah, I, I've been making the same case. I mean, like on, on multiple fronts. Like I think I've had friends, like writer friends in the past, try to make the argument to me that the the, the very best books rise to the top. Like you, they're undeniable and they're going to find a big readership. And the reason they do is because they're the best. And um, No, and it's I, just not true. <laughs> I, that's what I always say. I'm like, no, I've been doing this uh, this podcast for long enough. I've had enough conversations with enough writers who I know, I know in my bones are like so, so good. And yeah. yet they're, they're mid-list or or worse. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're in terms of their readership, it's just not yeah. happening yet. And it, it's totally unjust in my mind. And I don't know. I just, I will, I will go to the mat for that, uh, idea. And then I think, um, you know, the other thing is, uh, this idea of, you know, magical timing and a book meeting its moment with sort of unbelievable, um, What's the word? I guess just good timing. I'm thinking of this book right now. Uh, it's called Wintering. I don't know if you've heard of this book. I have. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, tell me about it. It's well. It's just it's buzzy. I, uh, I it's on my list to read, but I've read about it, and it's this book all about like, you know, wintering, like like bedding down and regenerating and rejuvenating and not penalizing yes. yourself. Like it's all about the mass, you know, the, the power of um, restorative time and how we need as humans to embrace this more. We don't let ourselves winter. And I was like, man, talk about good market timing, like heading into yeah. this winter. <laughs> it's just yeah. like that author's got to be thinking like, whoa, I really got this right. You know, the heck happened. I just, uh, yeah, it's almost like the world went to hell and, uh, and <laughs> it worked well for me. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but then it is actually true. And it was a, a very good uh, question to ask. Why don't we do that for ourselves um, more? Because as I keep saying, if if you've ever known anybody who's, you know, had someone in their life who was ill or uh, they, where they had to uh, really help like a child or an older or a person in their lives, you you can't help other people if you yourself are horribly depleted. You really have to. Um, it seems, you know, you, your Protestant work ethic will tell you that you're being selfish, but you're actually not. Um, you're just strengthening yourself so that you can help others. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's something in maybe the American character that is even more toxic on that front. I don't know how crazy Canada. I mean, I, I'm sure Canada has its uh, has its uh, aspects of this, but in America, it's just like this go culture all the time, and people brag about not taking vacation and not sleeping, and they get yeah. into it's called competitive stressing, and it bugs me to no end. Yeah, I think it's um, who is the? There was a TV show once called House, and the uh, main actor uh, is a very well-known British comedian, actually, and has been in all kinds of um, um, British comedies. Um, and the the TV show was big, and it was successful, and it went for a number of seasons. But I remember seeing him um, interviewed, and the look on his face when he started to talk about how hard Americans work. Um, and how exhausting it was to even try to keep up with um, the uh, the people in the TV industry that he was that he was working with, and he, he went on about it. It was it was obviously a shock and not something he really enjoyed about his um, his great you know his great success. That that was something he really wished you know wasn't the case. Well, he should hang out with me. I'm uh, yeah, I'm and me. <laughs> I'm happy to serve as the uh, you know the counter to that. 
Yeah, and I, I don't know if the if it's it, very, more a case of what gets airtime, especially in the states and and with news media, what what elements of you know American culture are getting more. Um, are making more noise and getting more attention than the other side, which is much quieter and much more, you know, there are the, uh, there are the gentle, they're gentle, um, um, calm, rational, um, Americans. They're just maybe not, you know, blowing up on the news every night. There's that. I think too, you can have people whose, whose natural inclination would be to not live that way but yeah. who get caught up in jobs and situations where the culture enforces a kind of code on people. I think this is what it is. You know, you have these business cultures or the, you know, whether it's the entertainment business or it's, you know, investment banking or whatever it is. And, you know, it's just capitalism on steroids and it winds up creating situations where I think people who might know better wind up working, you know, 80 hours a week and bragging about it. <laughs> and kind of, yeah, believing it. Um, years and years and years ago, I worked in a, um, in a independent bookstore in Toronto. It was called This Ain't the Rosedale Library, and it was a really funky little bookstore. And we had, you know, a self-help section, like every bookstore. Um, and, you know, nine-tenths of the, the self-help books uh well, not nine tenths, but you know there were books like How to Swim with the Sharks, um, all you know these books about how to you know get ahead, how to be your best self, how to you know um, best other people, how to climb to the top. Um, and there was one book um, called Solitude. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author. It's long, long, long ago. But there's one lone book that was about. Um, there was a self-help book about how to be okay in your own skin and with your own um, company. And, you know, it, it sold like hotcakes because people would look at these things and go, but wait a minute, you know, uh, what about what what about me? What about how I am handling this when I put down the phone and I go home? You know, so I, I, I keep going back to that whole question of, of uh and again, this is this is something that I wanted to talk about in my book is how comfortable are you with yourself um, in solitude um, and with your own in your own company? And I think it's a complex question. I think writers tend to be pretty good at it. Yeah, that's one thing we have going for us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think it's just it's part of our boot record. It's something that. Um, we most of us were born okay with, um, and so maybe I don't know. Maybe we should uh, try to teach people, you know, how to do it. I'm not quite sure how we do it, but we do it. Yeah, I think uh, I think the writing is the key. I mean, it's that activity as a way of sorting through solitude, or uh, you know, I think if you took that away and and we as people were just alone, we didn't have a pen in our hand or a laptop in front of us. It, might not be nearly so appealing. You know what, Brad, you are so right about that because there have been a few times in my life when um, writing was just um, not on the table for me for various for various reasons. I did not have the time or I didn't have the, um, it, you know, I won't call it writer's block because I don't know if it was, but, you know, extended periods of time during which I didn't write, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty loopy. 
I was pretty odd and I didn't really see what my purpose in life was, which is a weird thing to say. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a it's a healthy outlet for us. And um, hopefully, you know, at the end of uh, all of that work, something comes out that, you know, other people can enjoy. You worked as a poet. You've published yeah. poetry um, prior to writing fiction. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm always, I love this crossover. Um, I love, I love talking to poets, period. I, I think some of the best conversations I've had on this show have been with poets. And I often kind of joke around. I'm like, this is my, these are my people. I'm not a poet per se, but I always get I along with a poet for some reason. And I'm interested to hear you talk about the ways that doing that work and publishing that kind of work for a while informed the way that you approach fiction. You already talked about the outline that you wrote, uh, which is, a, you know, unusual and interesting to me that you kind of took a stab at an outline in, in the form of a poem and that yeah. set you on your way with Outlander. Um, but can you just talk about like the relationship between those two pursuits? And I, I would imagine they feed one another, but are they ever at cross purposes? Um, that's very astute. Um, because yes, uh, they are so, um, as I say, they seem to be almost a different part of the brain. Um, when I'm writing poetry, uh, fiction seems very long-winded and not particularly good at getting to the point. And when I'm, you know, when I'm writing fiction and reading fiction and, my, and I have my fiction brain going, um, it's very hard for me to access poetry and understand what the poet is saying because it's so coherent and it's so... Um, um, I don't want to say inward, but it's, it, I find it hard to access because I'm out in that big floppy fiction world. Um, but the thing that is interesting about, um, like Michael Ondaatje is a, is an example of somebody who started off as a poet and then became a fiction writer and did beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, and I think distinctly as a result of having started off as a poet and having basically apprenticed as a person who cares um, about, you know, um, word selection. It sounds like a simple and dumb kind of thing to say, but I've found, and I've seen this happen, so many of my friends are poets, and quite often they'll do things like send out on a CC list you know, I'm thinking this is going to be the title of my book. Here here are two or three um, options for the title of my book, and I can't make up my mind. What do you guys think? And it is amazing how all of them will come down on the same title. No, 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 no. This is by far the best. This, these are the words you need in the title, and, and, and that's that. So there is, there is an amazing level of acumen when it comes to uh, choosing the exact word and the the way to approach a sentence, the way to come out of a sentence, and the way to go on to a different thought, a whole notion of cadence, the sound of the voice, the way my voice sounds when I'm speaking and when I stop and when I don't, um, you know, uh, coming right down to assonance and dissonance and uh, consonance, I guess, and, uh, you know, the, the, the words you use and how they sound when you speak them, how they sound when inside your head when you're reading them. Um, and all of that stuff is um, first nature to poets. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, if you're not a poet, you just, you know, um, you're, 
you can write a you can write a beautiful book, you can write a beautiful sentence, but you know poets have that real kind of laser focus on utterance. And so for me it was an inter- that and that is in part why I was a bit nervous about starting uh, to write fiction and how and why writing fiction was a little bit of a struggle for me because I had to learn to let go. Um, and uh, I couldn't write. Uh, let's say I started with short stories. I couldn't write a short story that was as um, crystalline as a poem would be. It just wouldn't work as fiction for me anyway. Do you read aloud your work in the edit like to yourself? Good, good question. No, I don't. I don't. Um, There's a voice uh, that reads. uh, I, I read in my head. And when I'm when I'm reading my own words, my words, my beautiful words, um, I will hear a voice reading that book or that chapter or those sentences to me, and it's not quite my voice. It's a slightly different voice. And I've I've talked to a few other writers about this, and um, apparently I'm not the only one who hears a an odd voice in my head. But no, I actually don't read it out loud. Um, And that has backfired on me a couple of times as I find myself uh, in front of a crowd and reading um, something that that reads beautifully um, on the page or that I I fancy to myself reads beautifully on the page, but that is actually hard to get your mouth around um, in front of an audience. So the long, the, the, the short answer to that is I don't and I probably should. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I I think I like to think I do. I don't think I, maybe I have at some do point. You? Do I don't you, know. Like, Not do you formally. Say, do you actually read it out loud or do you imagine yourself reading it out loud? Maybe. Like, you know, like, I don't even know if I remember and I don't think I ever do it formally. I don't say like today I'm going to do an out loud read to try to, <laughs> you know, suss it out. No. But I think maybe when I'm just standing there caffeinated at my you know, computer, I'm muttering it to myself or something to try to make sure it sounds right. I think some people, like some some writers do actually uh, read everything out. Sometimes they read it out to their um, household or whoever they live with or the cat. Um, but for some people, it, this is very, for some writers, this is very, very much part of the writing process. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think everybody's method is slightly different. I find that that fascinating. Different writers, you know, you and I could sit down and compare notes and we we'd be you know, doing the same thing and in agreement on a lot of stuff and, and quite different on uh, on others. You know, uh, even just the very basic, simple, kind of dumb question, do you write with a with a pen and paper or do you write on the computer? You know, that, that breaks that breaks people down, writers down um pretty niftily. So what do you do? What is what is your first draft? Is it on a computer or is it in a notepad? Um I could not get my hands on a computer fast enough. Um, I'm not a particularly, I'm a fast, I'm much better now actually, but when I was younger, not a particularly good typist. I don't, I don't touch type. I type with two fingers and I hammer away at the keys. And, you know, I remember thinking, if I have to retype a 10 page story one more time, I'm going to scream. The whole notion that I could correct on the screen was just bliss to me um i took to the computer very quickly so i write 
straight onto the computer. Um, I have the same, you know, um, feelings as other writers do when they look at the blank page. It's a blank page. Um, and uh, I just I just love the um, the facility of being able to move things around. Now, that being said, I don't use programs like Scrivener or anything like that. Um, I write sequentially. I just bang out a, uh, you know, a, a chapter. I may make notes that are sort of all over the place, you know, for uh, toward the end of the book, I want this to happen. But um, in terms of, of taking a, let's say, three or 400 page manuscript and moving chapters around, I, I, I do it um, by hand. I do it manually. So it's slow in, in, that, in that case. But I just can't, I just, it's word and nothing else. I, you know, and the, here's the truth, because I have Scrivener and I've dabbled with it. It seems a little bit complicated to me. Like, yeah. I don't think I really know how to use it, and it's not as intuitive as I wish it were. And at the end of the day, like, writers don't need much more than pages or Microsoft Word or a, a notebook. I mean, for God's sakes, like, you know, how no, many I've, different... I always carry a notebook in my back pocket, and I don't have it now, but often a pen sticking out of my, my collar... Um, and you know, you'll make these, these like, well, I've got, I got, got an idea. I'm going to write down a note. Um, but it really, it's as you say, it's quite simple. It's just, it's just a novel. How hard is it to take a, a chunk out of a scene and move it forward and then smooth out the transition? You know, it's not that, it's not that hard and, and I don't mind doing it. It's also meditative work when you're, uh, you know, you're sort of pondering and then you can find yourself going where well, I, that didn't work at all. I don't like it. Nope. And just control Z and back it goes. So I want to ask you about, you t we talked a little bit about voice and, you know, speaking aloud and all that kind of stuff when you're editing. And I was reading about you and there is uh, a character in Ridge Runner who is, uh, he's 12 years old. I guess he grows up as the, as the book goes on, but it's a 12 year old boy named Jack. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested to hear you talk about getting into the mind and into um, the life of this boy. And what struck me funny was you were talking about it in an interview, a print interview, and you were saying that you asked a lot of your male friends about to, to kind of help you understand what this time in a boy's life is like, and almost none of them had anything to say because they couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that is very relatable to me. Like I am forever bemoaning how bad my memory is. And I like, I think back to when I was 13 years old, I mean, I suppose if I really sat down and thought about it, I could come up with a few things, but the truth is that I spend no time thinking about it. And I recall almost nothing. That's amazing to me. And because I think that your average, um, grown woman, if you were to ask, her uh about being a 13 year old girl a 12 or 13 year old girl they'd have lots to say um and you know we all go through these sort of you know upheavals puberty up upheavals um but yeah and it is a maelstrom and you're dealing with so many other things at the same time um and and you're right i i was i was quite nervous about um, getting into the the mind of a character that is going through that particularly very uh, important and almost any parent will tell you I'm not a parent but you know any parent will tell you that um, shit's happening in that kid's life at that age 
Um, and so I, I felt like I had to be very careful, um, and I tried to do my research about it. And in the end, the only thing I could do um, uh, was to uh, thank my lucky stars that the kid is kind of just this side of that stage where, you know, they start to become sexually interested in other people. Um, and so there are, in many ways still a kid and I remember what it was like to just be a kid so I, I did my best to make Jack be like me and for me to sort of uh, put myself into that into that into that little person but yeah you know I was keenly aware of the fact that I'm not and have never been a 12 year old boy um, but yeah that, that was a surprise to me that uh, as you say men don't have a lot of memories of that particular moment. And the moment is pretty intense for them. You know, that one, that stage where you just suddenly grow, it, it must be so shocking. Yeah. I mean, I, I, they're definitely like the intensity of adolescent, like hormonal feeling and mm -hmm. like hurt feelings. And, you know, there's some memories of that. Like I can, I, I have this kind of uh, broad notion of the intensity of it. But yeah. maybe I yeah. blacked it out because it was traumatic. I don't know. You know, like, I guess I just, as a person, I tend not to spend much time looking backwards. I, I think I'm so, I'm having so much trouble with right now. <laughs> like, I can't, yeah. I can't take on the past too much. It's like, you know, I've got my hands full. You got your hand. No, and that's probably a, you know, a, a very uh, helpful, uh, you know, survival mechanism in you. But it's also... I mean, from my little foray into that, it seems quite natural. It seems like most heterosexual men or, you know, the, the heterosexual men that I talked to um, just kind of flushed that information. <laughs> um, so for whatever reason, you talk to you talk to a gay man, they will they will remember a lot of uh, a lot of stuff, as you say, hurt feelings and um um, but you know, it's a little, it's a little later in life. It's not the twelve-year-old. It's it's sort of li a little later in life that they, when they start to sort of see themselves sexually in the world, um, that's that's where the intensity is. But yeah, and as I say, completely different for for someone like me. Um, I remember it all in horrid detail. When, <laughs> so when is that memoir coming out? What when do we get to read? <laughs> My my fear of the girls' bathroom. <laughs> well, we'll you know call what? It. I, like I, you know, I, I won't make you go over your fear of the girls' bathroom unless you want to. But I do <laughs> think it, it's an interesting juxtaposition to think of you in the work that you do writing historical fiction, and to then think of personal history and how those two things might be braided together somehow. Like, is your interest in writing about the past and writing outside of present context and your, you know, the span of your life, even, you know, mm -hmm. do you have a similar fascination or level of, um, is there a similar level of intensity to your interest in your own past? Does that have something to do maybe with your, the vividness of your memories of adolescence, for example, are you somebody who gets really into genealogy and, wants to know about your ancestry and, you know, how your people wound up in Canada or uh, what have you? Um, less, less genealogy. Um, although I think, uh, you know, several people in my family, my, my paternal grandfather was, uh, he called himself the family archivist. So he, 
he had, and now I have, um, boxes and boxes and boxes of uh, everything from the, that family. And the, uh, my family came to Canada. Um, I'm seventh generation, so many, many, many years ago. I think we're working on our ninth generation in this uh, in this family. Um, and he had everything going back. It's too much. It's too much. But, you know, boxes and boxes of, of photographs, of family photographs. You know, I know some families that have six family photographs, and and that's it. And I've got hundreds, 800, something like that, of, of people, some of whom I have no idea who they are. This is great uncle, what's his name, and I have no idea. Um, so my own experience of that is um, going to sleep at the at the uh, you know at the dinner table as my grandfather went on about you know uh, great uncle William and great uncle Arthur, um, and then you know a little later in life uh, becoming interested, becoming a little bit interested and in going gee I wonder what the heck that was about I'm writing a historical novel, and I I'm pretty sure someone in my family um, homesteaded on the on the Red River which is outside of you know the the sort of area outside of Winnipeg. Um, where's that information? And, you know, my grandfather was gone and I couldn't really, um, ask him that question. So I have found myself rooting through some of this, um, some of these archives. My interest in my own, my own past, um, is very much psychological and it's very much, um, me, um, trying to understand my parents, understand my parents, uh, you know, their psyches, um, um, where they came from, what it must have been like for them. You know, you hear family stories, and some of them may not be all that uh, happy. They may not be all that pleasant. And you piece things, I piece things together sort of much later. And, and again, as I say, it's too late to, um, it, you know, go to my mother and say, so what was your dad really like? Like, be honest with me. What was he really like? Um, and, and things like that. And to, you know, to sit my, my father down and say, so... Uh, you know, tell me about when you met mom. Uh, I can't, I can't do that anymore. But, but I do, I do remember, as you say, I'm able to go back and I'm able to remember what people told me. Um, and so I'm putting together this funny little, funny little picture of where I, where I came from and what this child who was me, uh, was, was running through as all this tension was going on in the family and all this love and all this, you know, fighting and everything that was going on. Um, and, uh, and it really does help me understand why I am the way I am, who I am, why I write, you know, all those kinds of, all those kinds of good questions. But as I say, you know, I, I often think people become interested just, again, this is going back to the frontier. You, you, you are, you suddenly become interested when it's really hard to find information. Right. It's like, you're like, damn, I wish I would have thought of this 12 years ago. When I, yeah, when I could have sat sat down with people and said, "Okay, my future self just uh, spoke to me last night and said, look, you better ask this question." Yeah, because <laughs> you're going to be interested. You're not interested now. I get it, but like, just ask the damn question. So, do you have writers like? Do you come from a a, a book bookish family? Either of your parents uh, writerly? Um, my father, my mother really loved. Uh, you know, the, the writing of Paris in the twenties. So I grew up with all these, you know, short story books and Anais Nin books and things like that. Uh, but she just was a consumer of it. Um, 
people in my father's family are extraordinarily well-spoken. Uh, it wasn't until much later in life that I realized not everyone spoke like that or had the kind of facility to uh, to write clearly, cleanly, interestingly. My grandfather um, wrote a bunch of books. He was a, a his, uh, architectural historian, and he wrote books on, uh, you know, um, old buildings in Ontario, which is where I live. And he won, you know, the Governor General's Award for that. Um, he had a, a, a co-author. Um, so they won it together. Um, and he did the writing. And he was he was very good at communicating, as was my father. Um, I have a cousin, Chris Adamson, who is also a writer. And he's very talented. Um, so on my father's side, uh, you know, there were quite a few artistic people. My great-grandmother was a, was a painter. Um, um, so maybe we inherited the kind of creative um, bent from her. Um, but yeah, there there are a num there are a small number of writers in uh, in my family. I have a uh, a family portrait, one of these old um, you know painted uh, portraits of, of of an old guy uh, in a minister's uh, um, he's got a minister's collar on, and I've got him you know uh, up against my wall here, and I I've kept him because he's the first. Uh, Adamson that I uh, in our family who published a book and he published it in the late 1700s and it wasn't a novel and it wasn't about God it was about fly fishing in Canada and it was a book on fly fishing that was used and may still be read today because it's really a very good book about fly fishing in Canada and you have it I have the book somewhere here yeah I do <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you do come from a lineage. I mean, your grandfather writing these architectural uh, architectural histories, I can see the line between that work and the work that you do and the interest yeah, that you have. And uh, were you raised in Ontario and Toronto or on the outskirts or Um, I was born uh, I was born in Toronto and very quickly thereafter we moved to Australia. Um and I I we lived there for 3 or 4 years, so I was I was quite little. Um um, and then we moved back. Where, um, where in Australia? In Sydney. Uh, we lived in Hunters Hill in Sydney, uh, and uh, uh, I think it was, I think it was a very happy time uh, for my parents and clearly for me. Um, and then we moved back to Canada, and um, you know, my father has a, f my father was a bit of a shutterbug. He took he took photos uh, nonstop, and he's got a photo of of uh, of me encountering snow for the first time. And and it was funny because apparently I asked for a, a beach ball for Christmas because in Australia, you know, uh, Christmas, December is the hottest year. So everybody's in their little wading pool. Um, kids are out there in their little plastic pools. Uh, so, but for, you know, uh, I lived in Japan for very briefly, uh, very briefly, but I, I got a, I got a lovely, lovely little excursion to, uh, Japan. Um, but the rest of the time I've been living here. And as I say, I lived in Banff, but you know, I'm, I'm a Toronto girl, big city. It's a good place. I've been to Toronto. It's, it's a, it can be, it can depends on where you go. It it can be, you know, um, boring and touristy, but if you get off the beaten track and you go to some of the places that Torontonians go, Oh, it's great. And it's also great for food. Uh, that's one of the things I, we, my husband is a, is a very talented home cook. And that's one of the things, if we were to move, if we were to leave Toronto, we would miss access to pretty much any ingredient you want for any world cuisine you can imagine. You can find it here. It's just a matter of, it's just a matter of finding out where. 
you scored. You would to have a, a gourmet chef in house. I mean, he may not camp, but he cooks. So there you go. A, a gourmet chef and a poet. It's. A, I think this is uh, some uh, some people's dream. I would say. Yeah, you know, I was in Toronto. My God, this would have been more than a decade ago, and my wife was working uh, up there for the film festival, and I tagged along. We were. I think we were dating back then. Oh, that's cool. And I remember. You know, I just sort of tagging along, and I got to go to some screenings, and I went to see uh, that Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. Remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like sitting right behind Tilda Swinton. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it was like this really heady experience, and I went, and it was in this beautiful old theater, like beautiful ornate old movie house in Toronto somewhere. And I think I know where it is. That might have been the Winter Garden or something like that. It was, yeah. it was gorgeous, just, right? It was just awesome. It was like you know, it was like oh my god, this is so fancy. And I remember seeing that movie, and when the the lights came up at the end, I was like, this is the next Citizen Kane. I got so swept up in it. I thought it was <laughs> definitely going to win best best picture. I was like, it's it's you know, this is a masterpiece. And I actually do think it's a very good film. Uh, I think it's aged well and, and sort of kind of like a minor masterpiece of the Coens, like one of their more underrated movies, but. That's yeah. what I think of when I think of Toronto. That and I just rented a bike and just rode all over the place, and it was great. You did, you did exactly. That is awesome. That is a really great introduction to the city. That you, you. I mean, getting on the bike is is one of the best things you can do as well, and just, um, just riding around to different uh, neighborhoods and and TIFF, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival. I think it's still called TIFF. It's it's hilarious for us, you know, people who live in the city generally don't go to it because we know most of those films are going to come back and it's oh well, I don't think I'm going to line up for that you know it's it's just going to come back <laughs> so you know we're spoiled in that way but also you know you'll see you'll see you know huge actors just walking along the street you know I was walking along the street and I walked past Harrison Ford and it was just like wow that was Harrison Ford <laughs> right right <Yeah. laughs> he's shorter than I thought you know that kind of thing um, I, for some reason, it's, I mean, I think this is common knowledge, but Harrison Ford is a gigantic stoner. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who had to film him for something like totally like random, like up in Jackson hole and just said, mm -hmm. he's just sitting there just smoking a joint. And I don't know, he's like kind of notorious as a oh, stoner. Right. Yeah. Oh, you would, you would picture that being, uh, and that's just Jeff Bridges. That's just, that's just the Lebowski yeah. in my brain, uh, talking, but. Yeah, you know, you get you actually get to see like we've known um we used to live next door to a a guy who was a grip in movies and he also, you know, doubled every now and then as a as a um you know, a VIP driver. So he would drive people around in the uh in there and when Tiff happened, he would he would drive a limo. Um and he told some pretty uh, uh uproarious stories that I can't re repeat about this or that um older American actor and the the kinds of shenanigans they got up to and how much they drank. And it was just, you know, great. It was like great stories. Uh, and, you know, our friend, our neighbor was was right up for all of these shenanigans. So and we can't get a name of the celebrity. Who is it? <laughs> <laughs> Give me some initials. <laughs> uh, no, I better not do that. <laughs> uh, it's so Canadian. It's so like Canadian that. and polite and, you know, that's exactly what you should do. You should not. I should, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't talk smack about people but he also had a great story and this is a complete aside but um because he was a driver and he could drive you know trucks and he, I think he had multiple um driver's licenses 
He used to do the uh, used to drive a float for the uh, Santa Claus parade. <laughs> and uh, he one year he was, you know, how slowly they they drive along. Um, and I can't remember what he had on the back of the truck, what what kind of float he had. But he started to realize that the truck was overheating. And they're just crawling along the main drag of Toronto, which is, uh, you know, um, actually, I think they were on, on College Street. They're motoring along College Street. And he starts to realize, nope, 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 we're about to stall. So he turns up a side street, very slowly turns up a side street, and every float behind him follows him up the side street. <laughs> and they end up just like, he breaks the he breaks the float and uh, the, the parade in half and takes them. <laughs> completely the wrong direction that was that was mayhem so he had some great stories so before i let you go i want to ask uh like one more follow-up question that i think could be useful to people listening who might have some inkling to write or attempt to write historical fiction and this is the question i think that always comes up in my mind when i'm speaking to somebody who work uh, who works in this genre which is the issue of research and how gargantuan a, a task it can seem when the job and the responsibility that you're giving yourself is to render uh, a world from, you know, a century ago or two centuries ago or, you know, a thousand years ago, whatever it might be, uh, and to do it with some fair degree of accuracy. Um, I think you spoke to it a little bit ago about how, you know, at some point you have to you have to trust yourself and shift from research to writing. You could, could yeah. go on interminably, but like very specifically, what do you do? Like, where do you begin? I know you go to the library, but like, where do you go in the library? What do you look for? Uh, do you have a list of things that you give yourself like a to-do list or things that I need to do before I can move on to writing? Like, how do you manage something that unwieldy? It'll, what's a brilliant question. How, you know, very specifically, you know, where do you start with this? It will depend largely on, you, you mentioned a thousand years ago. Um, I've often wanted to write something that was that long ago just because it would be such a challenge. Um, the first uh, thing I would caution people is to not make historical characters sound like they're not like us. Um, people are people. Uh, they may use slightly different diction to uh, to to speak, but their reactions and the way they they uh, go through the world, they're, it's they're going to be the same as us. So if you go too heavy on, um, just ma make them make them uh, uh, imagine yourself in in their position and uh, and and go with that. If the first. The Outlander, uh, I had much, uh, a much less specific job because I just had to understand what life was like at the daily level at the turn of the last century. So I was looking for books. There was a, there's, a, there's a book called 1900, and it's just about what life was like at the turn of the last century. And it's got photographs and it's got, you know, clippings from the newspaper. And, you know, it goes, I think it goes sort of monthly and it will sort of say, you know, um, January 1900 this was what was happening in the world and it it, it talked about um you know um you know 
health and politics and you know it would show you know, beautiful photographs and that was a great book for me but you know it's the kind of thing that I would stumble across I find as well when you are interested in let's say you decide to write a book about the the Salem witch trials um, you know you know where to go you know to read books about it don't read other novels necessarily right away do do, do a bit of uh, basic research um, uh, but you will also find that a lot of really interesting, fortuitous uh, books will pop up for you. And it's not necessarily that your friends know that you're, you know, writing this book. It's almost like synchronicity that um, books that will be useful to you pop up. And it's probably simply because your eyes are open to, uh, you know, that kind of opportunity. Um I ended up going because there's an element in my book uh, that talks about internment camps in uh, in Canada. Um, so I really did need to go and look at the military records uh, and go through the military diaries of of the of one particular um, internment camp. I needed to understand uh, what it was like, and it was great because I, I had this military diary that that they literally uh, talked day by day about what was happening. In the usual military way, they would talk about weather, they would talk about who was out on work gangs, they would talk about who'd tried to escape and who'd been shot and things like that. But I, you know, I read it like it was a novel and I, I felt like I'd lived through, you know, f three or four years of uh, that e experience. So it's hard to, it's hard to say how to start, but it will really depend on what you are studying. And again, as I say, you, you'd be surprised of the, the, the lucky little things that come across your path as you're, uh, as you're doing the research. Yeah, I think that, you know, I've done a little, I wrote a novel, I did a little bit of like interweaving of uh, nonfiction, it's sort of hard to explain, but it's kind of a, a hybrid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember I there were, hybrids. yeah, and there were these great like moments of synchronicity between what was happening in the plot of the novel and what I was digging up uh, historically. Yes. And that, so you know that feeling of going, oh boy, this is great. I can use this. Yeah. Or it would just be like, un, it would, sometimes it would get kind of, un, you know, kind of eerie. It would be like, whoa, like I didn't realize, you know, so-and-so's uh, wife had killed herself and I was working, you know, I'm writing a novel that's about suicide grief and it was just, you know, those kinds of things where you start to wonder if there are like ghosts in the machine. Like, did you ever have, do you ever have experiences like that working in a historical mode like do you have like a spiritual sense of maybe like are there people talking to me through the ether from different um eras or are you not that woo-woo about it <laughs> oh i love that i love that term woo-woo i've got a friend who who you know uses that that that's the woo-woo store over there it's got all kinds of crystals um <laughs> hey you're, ta um, you're I... talking to somebody from los angeles which is the capital i think the world of capital woo. of woo <laughs> That's just awesome. No, I, you know, I don't, and this is funny because there is an, there is an element of the book I deliberately put in uh, where there's a, something a little ghostly going on. One of the characters who is no longer with us is still there. Um, and it was something that I did uh, for myself. Um, now I'm, I, I'm not very woo woo, I have to say. And yet, as you, uh, as you say, these these little fortuitous things are, are they are sometimes spooky it, it is a little bit like how how in the world did that just pop uh, like we were in the strand me and my me and my husband 
and he just I don't know even why he he just put his hand on a on a book uh, and said no this might interest you and every time we go into a bookstore he'll just sort of like grab something and hand it to me and it is ridiculous how useful the book is um, so yeah I, I don't know I, I think I think it has a lot to do with uh, your attention so you noticed that this uh, that this character's wife had killed herself and in a different in a different situation you might have just glossed over that but you were awake to that you know um, that element of this person's life or you were awake to what that meant or the ghost of this man and his wife were speaking to me like telepathically <laughs> across the ages I'm willing to go there I don't I have crystals all over the place down here in you're, Los Angeles. you're, you're gonna go there okay okay no it's it you, I I cannot say that you're wrong I cannot say you you may actually be right and I'm I'm the horse with blinkers on you know it, it is it is entirely true and as I say I put it into my book too so I, I'm in no position to you know um be Mr. Owl PhD on this because you know I've I do have a ghost, and I believe she's there. And and it's a realistic book, and I put the ghost in. So there you go. There you, you got go. me. There you go. And I think, too, you know, as you were talking, I was like, wow, there should really be a book, and maybe there is, for every single year. Like, I want yes. a – there should be a collection, like 1900, 1901. Like, we, this is a valuable contribution to the human historical record. It it really is, and I think. And what surprised me is how fun it was to read. How, uh, how, as I say, I read it like a novel. It 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 felt like you were going through a story because you were, you know, life is a story. You're like I felt like I had smallpox. It was wonderful. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I I felt like I didn't have the vote. This was this was very perplexing. (laughs) Well, Jill, I'll tell you, it's been uh, really fun to meet you and talk with you. Uh, about all of this stuff and well it's it's been an honor thank you so much for inviting me you you ask beautiful questions thank you for uh um for being so such an interesting person and um i wish you great luck with your own writing thank you i appreciate it and uh congrats on the success of the outlander and on the new one the ridge runner thank you so much thank you okay that is jill adamson Her new novel is called The Ridge Runner, available from House of Anansi Press here in the United States as of February 2nd, 2021. She is also the author of the award-winning novel The Outlander. You can pre-order The Ridge Runner right now or get your hands on it February 2. Jill Adamson does not have a web presence that I'm aware of. I salute her for that. But you can check out Uh, House of Anansi Press online, on Twitter, etc. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 680 episodes, I believe, and counting, all available for free. New episodes every Wednesday. The show's official website is otherppl.com. If you want to get another people t-shirt or sweatshirt or tank top, you can do that by clicking on the t-shirt on the left sidebar at otherppl.com. If you want to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's a listener-supported show. If you would like to tip your server, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. 
Go get it. It's the other people with Brad Listy app available wherever your uh, apps are available. So let me see here. Uh, what am I doing here? Who's coming up next? Let me try to sift through the madness of my uh, desktop. I believe my next guest will be uh, Rob Doyle, an Irishman, author of uh, the novel Threshold, which I enjoyed. So stay tuned for that. I talked to Rob Doyle over the transom. He was at home in Berlin, which is where he currently resides.